All right. So this study in the book of Daniel, and you can turn there now, uh, is going to take us about four months to get through. So I'm really looking forward to this. And the book of Daniel is in, it takes place in the city of Babylon. And I was thinking, well, what does a, what does a book that's 2,500 years old, uh, centered in the city of Babylon, which doesn't even exist anymore, what is the relevance, uh, for this book to us today? And as I was thinking about this, and as I was studying for this, uh, message, I found out that there is a movie in theaters right now called Babylon. And I, I knew nothing about the movie, um, other than it's called Babylon and it's rated R. And I mentioned something, uh, Susie and I were out with Mike and Rachel the other night and I mentioned something about uh, this Babylon movie, you know, the word Babylon is still in our culture today. And so Susie looks it up on her phone, and she reads the, the uh, one-sentence description of the movie, and I want to read it to you now. A tale of outsized ambition and outrageous excess, tracing the rise and fall of multiple characters during an era of unbridled decadence and depravity in early Hollywood. So that that is uh, the Babylon movie in theaters these days. Uh, but just those words, decadence and depravity, ambition, uh, outrageous excess, that's, that's the word Babylon. That's... Um, that's the culture of Babylon, and that is the culture of the United States of America today. So as as we go through uh, this book, we are going to learn about principles and precepts on how we can live in a modern-day Babylon. Now, I have to apologize up front here. Uh, because I won't take 30 minutes. I believe in a 30-minute message. I stand by that. That's uh, that's uh, part of my uh, innermost character, and I'll fight for that for the rest of you. But I made a mistake in not breaking this up into two messages, doing an introduction on the book and doing chapter one. So uh, I apologize in advance that I will go a little long today. Um, hopefully, uh, I can keep your attention. Young people, well, I'll, let me say this. I'm going to talk about nine aspects kind of in introducing the book of Daniel. And then I'm going to give, uh, we'll go through chapter one, and I'm going to give ten principles for young people. So young people, if you need to sleep, sleep through the first half of the sermon. Those of you that are history buffs, stay awake for the first half, because this is really interesting stuff as we go through the introduction here. So... Uh, nine aspects as we get into the book of Daniel here. The author, Daniel. Okay, I'll move fast now. I guess uh, maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll make this through this uh, faster than I thought. Okay, so the date of the book of Daniel. Well, it was written in about 536 B.C. towards the end of Daniel's life, and uh, there's a comment in here about being in the third year of the reign of King Cyrus. So that's kind of where we get that date uh, of 536. Now, there are skeptics who say, 
Daniel could not have been written in 536 B.C. And the reason they say that is that there are many, many prophecies in the book of Daniel. A lot of them have been fulfilled, and a lot of them were fulfilled in the intertestamental period, um, that 400 to zero range. Uh, specifically, uh, a lot of the prophecies have to do with this figure called Antiochus Epiphanes, um, who uh, desecrated uh, the temple uh, in about 165 BC. He's kind of a precursor for the Antichrist. And so uh, the skeptics see all these fulfilled prophecies for this figure Antiochus, and they say, well, Daniel couldn't have predicted that. And so this book must have been written after those things. So they place the writing of Daniel at about 150 BC. So the Bible is too accurate, so it must have been written later, is is the theory there. Okay, language. Um, Daniel was written partially in Hebrew and partially in Aramaic. It has some Greek words and some Persian words sprinkled in there. And uh, the Jews of the day could have read Hebrew and Aramaic, so they could have read this whole book. But the Gentile portions of the book are written in Aramaic, and the Babylonians could read that. So... Uh, there were certain portions of the book that Daniel wanted the Gentiles to be able to to read. And uh, the language also argues for an earlier date for Daniel, because if it really was written in 150 B.C., the language would have been different. There would have been uh, many, many more Greek words um, in the book of Daniel. The genre. Uh, what type of literature is Daniel? Well, it's a historical narrative. We think of all the stories from our Sunday school classes, right, that we'll get into these next four months. Daniel and the lion's den and the fiery furnace and the writing on the wall. Um, and it's Daniel is also a supernatural era. Um, there are six different supernatural eras where God works through miracles, the miraculous, the supernatural in Scripture. Uh, We think of Moses and the ten plagues. We think of the life of Jesus. Well, Daniel is one of those, so we see the miraculous in this book. Now, besides being a narrative, besides being uh, the storyteller that Daniel is, uh, this is also prophecy. Um, And I mentioned this earlier, but there is more fulfilled prophecy in the book of Daniel than any other book in the Bible. And it's really a Gentile-focused book. Um, The other prophets... The other uh, Jewish prophets of the time, they were more focused on Israel, on Israel's future, on the millennial kingdom, um, those types of things. Uh, So Daniel's more Gentile-focused. And uh, the type of prophecy that Daniel is is apocalyptic prophecy. It's visionary. It's symbolic. It's catastrophic. It's really like the revelation of the Old Testament, the revelation equivalent. Contemporaries. So Daniel is one of the major prophets, one of the four major prophets. A couple years ago, we went through all the minor prophets. Well, Daniel is a major prophet. And the other three are Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Now, Daniel lived at the same time as Jeremiah and Ezekiel, uh, also the same time as the minor prophets, Habakkuk and Zephaniah. And... uh, Jeremiah's ministry was to the Jews still in the promised land. Daniel, his 
sphere of influence was the Gentiles in Babylon. And then Ezekiel, I guess, was also taken into captivity, and he ministered to the Jews in captivity at the time. And in, in fact, Ezekiel mentions Daniel. Now, current events at the time around the world, as as uh, uh, as Daniel lives his life in Babylon, uh, the Mayans are thriving in Mexico. Uh, Aesop's fables are being written. Uh, Confucius and Buddha are alive. And the Acropolis is being built in Athens. Um, so I've got four more aspects of the introduction, but let me read the first two verses of our passage uh, this morning. Uh, Daniel chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Okay. So, the setting. So, uh, the kingdom of Assyria uh, was thriving before Babylon. And, in fact, Assyria was the kingdom that conquered the northern tribes. It was about a 100 years before uh, Daniel here. Judah, the, the southern tribe of Judah, lasted longer. And the main reason for that is every once in a while they would have a good king who would uh, turn the people back to the Lord in repentance. Now, uh, the Babylonian Empire, we'll talk about that for a minute. The capital was obviously Babylon. And uh, Babylon was on the Euphrates River, um, I think modern-day Iraq, kind of 50 miles north of where Baghdad is. And Babylon comes along, and they defeat the Assyrians. They defeat the Egyptians, and so they become the world power, and uh, they lasted for about 100 years. And then, eventually, Babylon is defeated by the Medes and Persians, which we'll read about in the book of Daniel as we go along. And that happened in 539 B.C. So the book of Daniel spans um, the whole 70 years of the captivity of the tribe of Judah. The kings. So we have two kings mentioned uh, in these first two verses. Jehoiakim is one. And Jehoiakim was really a puppet king. He was controlled by Egypt. Um, in fact, Pharaoh uh, put Jehoiakim on the throne and replaced Jehoiakim's brother. And so Jehoiakim is the 17th king uh, of the tribe of Judah, of the kingdom of Judah. He was a wicked king. Uh, Jeremiah tells us that he wasted the government funds to build a palace to himself. And then we have King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was a general in the army, and Nebuchadnezzar's father was King Nabopolassar. So I just want to take a time out here and say, uh, any of you families out there that uh, expect any new ones in the near future, if you're looking for a boy's name, you can't go wrong with Nabopolassar. It just rolls off the tongue. So uh, be thinking about that. Rarely used name, but man... Uh, the, the name of a king, Nabopolassar. So save that one. Free, free tip from here. So, uh, 
the general, Nebuchadnezzar, comes along. He's the one that actually is leading the army when the Babylonians defeat Assyria, when the Babylonians defeat Egypt, and then uh, they turn to Judah, and he uh, plunders Jerusalem, and that happened about 605 B.C. So this is um, the first out of three kind of Babylonian incursions into Judah. Now, Nebuchadnezzar leaves Jehoiakim on the throne, but now Jehoiakim is not under Egyptian control anymore. He's under Babylonian control. Now, King Nabopolassar, during this time where Nebuchadnezzar is, is there in, in the promised land, uh, King Nabopolassar dies. And so Nebuchadnezzar hears about this, and he has to make this 500-mile journey, uh, and he takes about two weeks, and he gets home, and he assumes the throne in Babylon. Now, later there was a second invasion uh, that took place about 597 B.C. Uh, Jehoiakim got too full of his riches again. He declares independence from Babylon. So the Babylonians come in, and they replace Jehoiakim and put one final king on the throne uh, in Judah before it's finally wiped out altogether. Okay. Um, the vessels... So in these verses, you see the vessels removed from the temple. They're taken from Babylon, or excuse me, they're taken from Israel, uh, from the temple there, and they're taken into the into Babylon and into uh, the temple of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's god, uh, which historians say is the god Marduk. Now, this had actually been predicted. Isaiah had prophesied about this. Uh, King Hezekiah had hosted some Babylonian visitors. Um, these visitors were checking on Hezekiah's health, and it's possible that Hezekiah showed these Babylonians these vessels in the temple. And Isaiah says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Don't miss the significance of these vessels being taken. This really would have been seen as a victory, a big victory for the god Marduk, and a big defeat for the god Yahweh. The Babylonians could say to uh, these Jews in captivity, my god is greater than your god. And But we see from this passage that the Lord allows this. He allows his own humiliation in this. And really, in the book of Daniel, we'll see uh, Yahweh, the God Yahweh, his vindication um, over the gods of Babylon. Okay, uh, the theme. So one of the themes, one of the purposes of the book of Daniel is uh, God's sovereignty is to talk about God's sovereignty, his sovereignty over creation, his sovereignty over the nations, over kings, over false gods and, and demons, really his, his sovereignty over all of humanity and all of history. And um, we see God's power displayed, that he is more powerful than the Babylonian gods. Um, even though his people are in captivity, um, even though uh, the vessels of Yahweh are in the Babylonian temples or the Babylonian treasury, the, these foreign kings learned that God, 
Yahweh is supreme. Now, another theme in the book of Daniel is uh, how do we respond to living in an ungodly world? What is our response to that? Well, we're to remain faithful. Um, There was a hostile culture facing Daniel, and it's so similar to our culture today. Um, How can we remain faithful? How can we wait and watch for God's ultimate victory for his kingdom? And that's really a theme of all of the Bible, right? There's um, the, the world of Jerusalem and the world of Babylon, God's city and Satan's city, God's people and Satan's people. And so from Daniel's perspective, you know, he could have taken this as a very hopeless situation. And we can too, as we see the depravity and the decadence, those words about our culture. But there is hope. There is a future for us. And Daniel kind of paints the way for how we can live uh, in these circumstances. So let's get into uh, this a little bit more here. Let me read verses 3 through 7. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Okay, so... Not only were the vessels taken back to Babylon, but there was some of the Jews were taken back, specifically Daniel, his three friends, uh, and other youth from the nobility and the royalty. And this happened, like I said, in 605 BC. This was the first of three waves of um, Jews taken into captivity. The second one was about 597 BC. The third about 588 BC, where Jerusalem was really destroyed. And this was all part of God's plan. This was judgment. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar didn't realize that he was actually uh, carrying out God's judgment on the people of Judah. Now, there were two reasons that God was judging um, the Jews, uh, the people of Judah. One reason was that Judah was really a land of idol worshipers. They were, they, they were unfaithful to God and they had, their land was filled with idols. And so God takes them from an idol worshiping situation in Judah, takes them into captivity, into an idol worshiping situation in Babylon. And I think God's plan worked. You wouldn't think it would, but I think, uh, as part of captivity, uh, the Jewish people really came to despise the worship of idols. And you, you see much, much less of idol worship uh, from the Jews after they've been taken into captivity. And the second reason that God judges the Jews it has to do with the Sabbath year. Now, every seven years uh, in Israel, there should have been a Sabbath year. God would give them a, 
the people an abundant crop during the sixth year, and they would be able to um, they would be able to uh, store up some of that crop to make it through year seven, and they were to give the land a rest. But the people never kept that. They never kept the Sabbath year. And that showed that they didn't trust God. They didn't take that step of faith uh, to trust him that he would provide during a seventh year with no, uh, with no crop. And so uh, Israel had been in the land, uh, in the promised land for 490 years. And so they had actually missed 70 Sabbath years. And so now God was going to give the land of Israel, 70 years of rest. Second Chronicles 36, 20 through 21 says, He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So we can take a personal lesson here. God is faithful. He's faithful in his promises, his promised blessings, but he's faithful in his judgments as well. God always reconciles the account. And so uh, from the final um, exile, the third exile, uh, until... The Lord Jesus is on the throne after the second coming, which Eric talked about last week. Uh, the throne in Jerusalem will be empty. It's waiting for the Messiah. And so far it's been 2,500 years. And uh, the Bible calls this period of time the times of Gentiles. Luke 21:24 says, They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Okay, so the king, let's get into these young men now. Let's talk about um, Daniel and his three friends. So the king has a plan. This first wave uh, has Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. They've been taken into captivity, and they've been put... uh, under the charge of the chief eunuch. They're to be educated and trained to enter into the king's service. They would have been, these four young men would have been 15, maybe late teenage years here uh, as they uh, as they get taken into captivity. And Nebuchadnezzar's plan is a good plan. Uh, he takes the best and brightest from the lands that he conquers, and he makes them servants. And these young men meet the requirements that he's looking for. Physically, mentally, socially, uh, he selects them. And so they get trained on language and literature and math and music. These would have been high school students or college students, right? That's the age we're talking about here. Uh, he, he knew they could be useful and molded to his purposes. And he's got a few goals here in doing this. Number one, uh, these are really hostages in some ways. And so, and they're from the nobility, from the royalty. So, uh, so the, those still back in Jerusalem would be hesitant to do anything against Babylon if all of their kids are hostages uh, under Nebuchadnezzar. 
So it prevents a rebellion. Uh, it, it's a reminder to Nebuchadnezzar. Every time he sees a Jewish servant in his presence, it's a reminder of his victory. Uh, he would have Jewish advisors, so if he ever had problems with the Jews, either the ones in captivity or the ones back in Jerusalem, he had Jewish advisors to help him with those problems. And and this is the big one to me. Nebuchadnezzar was a strong leader, a good leader in some ways, uh, as far as leadership goes. Um, and he know, knows what uh, the best leaders know, which that is that you surround yourself as a leader with gifted advisors, the best of the best. That's how you have a successful reign on the throne. And so these young men, men they're in captivity, but they, they get work, they get education, they get friends, they get food, they get community. Now, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, another part of his plan is he changes the names of these boys. And each of these four young men had names that referred to Yahweh in some way. And uh, the new names that they're given refer to these Babylonian, different Babylonian deities. So they're trying to break a link here, uh, trying to separate them from their Jewish culture so they would gradually forget uh, the lessons of their youth, that they would abandon the principles, any principles that they came into, uh, came with, uh, those would be abandoned. So um, I want to start making some principles uh, for young people here. Uh, I want to give some application here. So if you are a junior high, high school, college age, this is your time to wake up from your slumber and just pay attention uh, for the rest of this message. First, young people, the world will try and indoctrinate you in an ungodly worldview. They will uh, give you temptations and worldly pleasures, and they will try to find your price. What is the price you're willing to pay to compromise your beliefs? Is it good times? Is it comfort? Is it authority? Is it influence? Is it money? What is it? What is your price to compromise on your values? I've been thinking about um, this man in the news, this young man in the news recently. His name is George Santos. I don't know if some of you guys know that name, but he is a newly elected congressman into the House of Representatives. And He was elected in, and now they've done a background on him, and basically everything that he said about himself as he campaigned for Congress was a lie. It was all fabricated. He embellished his resume in order to get elected. And uh, they've had all these votes in the House of Representatives lately, and he's been in there, and nobody else wants to go talk with him. He's totally stained by the scandal of just fabricating his whole resume. So this is a young man uh, that compromised his integrity in order to get elected. What is the price, young people, that you would be willing to pay to compromise your beliefs? Hopefully, uh, hopefully there isn't a price for you. Second, young people, build up your immunity with the lessons of your parents and your church. Daniel And his friends were given godly names. Presumably they had godly parents and a godly upbringing and they had the, they had been taught and trained with the tools to take a stand for God. And now these young men are away from home. Uh, they have temptations coming at them. They're in the richest kingdom in the world. And so, 
uh, young people, take those lessons from home, from church. You live in the richest kingdom in the world right here in this country. Don't uh, allow yourself to be separated from the things of the Lord. Number three, young people, Satan has a plan for your life. Uh, Satan wants to give you, to indoctrinate you with worldly wisdom and worldly pleasures. He wants to change your identity. Uh, isn't that what universities are these days, maybe even high schools? Um, Daniel and his friends really had no choice in some ways. They were slaves, and they were going to be in this Babylonian system. And maybe maybe it's the same way for us. Maybe we really have no choice as well in this country. We are going to be bombarded with things of this world. And we may have to uh, study with the study the things and the subjects and the lessons that we don't agree with. Are we able to do that without compromise? God has a plan for your life, young people. These young men were forcibly taken out of their homes, away from their homes, into a foreign land. They were separated from loved ones. But the Lord was working, and Daniel somehow knew that. Daniel knew that God was in charge, even though maybe he he couldn't see it in the circumstances. Somehow he knew that. Um, so what about us in this um, crazy Babylonian culture that we live in? Do we know that the Lord is at work, that the Lord is still in charge of our lives, that he has a plan for us? Okay, next section here. Uh, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? so you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and their wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So, um, these young men were to be fed the best of the best from the king's table. And this was unacceptable to Daniel uh, for a couple reasons. One, the food was uh, probably unclean. Uh, not the meats that he was allowed to eat. The wine uh, would have been undiluted, um, so it could have affected his uh, mental faculties. And and second, um, this was meat uh, that the Babylonians used in uh, the rituals sacrificing to their deities. It was associated with idol worship. And so Daniel knew that this would be uh, blasphemy against God uh, to eat of this food. And so Daniel uh, resolves within him to not eat this food. He's powerless, really, in this situation. 
but he makes this resolution. He's not going to conform. He wants to maintain his identity. He wants to maintain his choice and his freedom in this situation. He doesn't want to compromise. And he's he doesn't know what the consequences are going to be for this resolution, but he's willing to pay the price. This is where we get that phrase, dare to be a Daniel, right? This is where Daniel dares. Um, had God abandoned Daniel, they'd been taken into captivity. Why would Daniel follow God, but instead he glorifies God in this decision? He's confident that God will respond. And, and this shows that there's a faithful remnant out there. Um, this, this was a man who was dedicated and willing to take a stand. And so he comes up with a plan, the Daniel plan. And he approaches Ashpenaz, who's the chief of the eunuchs, and Ashpenaz, it says, responded favorably to Daniel. Well, how did he really respond favorably? He didn't, he didn't really, uh, allow Daniel's plan to go forward at this point. But what he does is he explains the situation more fully to Daniel. Uh, he explains that it's going to be the death of Ashpenaz in three years if he brings these boys before the king and they're unhealthy. And so Daniel's got this extra information from Ashpenaz, and he approaches the steward, who is Ashpenaz's underling, uh, and assigned to these four men, and he comes up with this plan. It's the 10-day plan. He said, I'm not going to... He said, would you allow us for not to eat the king's meat, the king's wine, and instead eat fruits and vegetables and bread and water? And I guess that's what the text implies, that it's not just just vegetables, but it's fruit and bread, grains as well. And um, this shows Daniel's wisdom. Um, Daniel agrees to most of the restrictions that are given to him, but just not this one. He's not willing to compromise on this one. And he doesn't just refuse. He proposes a solution. And he does it in a way that's polite and kind and respectful and deferential. He's not obnoxious or rebellious or demanding. And he doesn't He's not looking for a win-lose solution. He wants a win-win. He wants a win for himself and his friends. He wants to maintain his integrity, but he doesn't want to cause any harm to the chief of eunuchs uh, or the steward. And so he gives this reasonable proposal for 10 days. 10 days test us in in this. Well, that that is totally reasonable because if the plan fails in 10 days, then these young men have a thousand days of eating the king's food before they actually have to appear before the king after three years' time. So there's plenty of time to recover if they've just eaten vegetables um, and water for ten days. Daniel doesn't know the outcome. There's uh, a possibility of failure here. He takes a step of faith, and really this is a step of faith here. This is the definition of faith where you don't know what the outcome's going to be, you don't know what the outcome God has for you is, and yet you're willing to do what's right. The outcome is, uh, for Daniel's faith, God is faithful. God responds uh, to Daniel's faith. And these four are healthier, uh, and it shows them, it had to be such an encouragement for them to know that God is active. And 
the eunuch and the steward get a win. They get four healthier young men. Uh, they'll look even better in front of the king now. So some more principles here for young people. Understand that your decisions have long-lasting consequences. Be faithful in the small things, and God will open up opportunities for you in the big things. Sometimes making right decisions are going to have negative consequences, like opposition or persecution. Daniel and his friends got positive consequences. They got respect and elevation. Understand the, the range of consequences to your choices. They could be bad consequences. They could be good. But you have to have a willingness to accept those things to do what's right. And play the long game. Um, just resolve, like Daniel did, to trust in the Lord because the eternal consequences will always be better. Young people, take the first opportunity to declare your allegiance. If you miss that first opportunity to t- take a stand for God, the next one and the next one are going to be harder. If you make that first stand, the next one and the next one will be easier. The king wanted to assimilate these young men um, and the boys allowed some of these external changes, but internally they decided to follow the Lord. This culture that we live in is going to try to assimilate us, but we as believers should be different than the culture. So keep that uniqueness, keep that difference, hold on to that. Um, the Babylonian culture, our culture today, uh, the worship of idols, Um, We need to remain faithful in a godless culture. Remain unstained by the world. Young people, take your stand modestly, not to bring attention to yourself. That's that's a a quality that's lacking in our culture today of social media and verbal bombs. Um, But Daniel was modest. He wasn't aggressive. Uh, He acted with deference and respect, and he proposed a solution. Can we have that same modesty and wisdom as we take a stand for God in our culture. Our final section here. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So um, the men were faithful, and God rewarded that. And he rewards them with learning and skill. I love these, these words in this, in this chapter. Learning and skill and wisdom and understanding. Um, Daniel was given a position of influence. He's now God's spokesman to the Gentiles. And there were future consequences as well. Daniel, uh, lived his life for 75 years with this influential position, which we'll see over the rest of the book. He served under four kings. Uh, He served until the end of the Babylonian Empire and into the Persian Empire under King Cyrus. And he was there to see the not only the beginning of the exile as he was taken into exile, but he was there to see the end of the exile and the people return to Jerusalem and the Promised Land. 
Now, there was future drama for Daniel, as we'll see, and for his friends. There was jealousy. There was evil. But he was willing to take a stand for God this time, this first time, and every time after that. A long career that Daniel had because of this faithful beginning, because of this first decision that he made. So, three more principles for young people. Be faithful in the little things. These early victories will lead to future victories. Past faithfulness will lead to greater opportunities to do something for God, to have eternal significance. God rewarded these men with favor and compassion and will reward us with favor and compassion and learning and competence and skill and knowledge and understanding. Aren't those qualities and things that we want? And our job is just to be faithful. That's our part. So young people, be faithful. Be in the world and not of the world, young people. Adapt to the culture, but don't compromise. Use Daniel as an example. Separate yourself from sin so that you can hear God and so that you can be useful to him. Keep those differences. Keep that uniqueness. Uh, there's no better place to demonstrate that, that than at school or at work. Work hard. Be on time. Don't use foul language. Um, serve your boss. Be useful to your boss. Have healthy conversations at school or at work. Um, it won't take long for you to stand out if you do that. Finally, Expect hard consequences for your faith. The enemy is going to attack, and we need to be willing to take a stand. That's that's the theme of Daniel. Uh, persecution and suffering will come if we take a stand for him. They can't. It comes to these four men. Maybe not this time, but as we'll see, it will come to them. But these men did not compromise. Our faithfulness will be tested. It will be tried, but that's part of God's plan. He wants us to have that experience of making it through trials and suffering. He's got a purpose in our trials and suffering, but are we willing to take a stand for him? Let's close in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for uh, the example of Daniel and his three friends as they were faithful in taking a stand for you, Lord. Help us, Lord, in this wicked culture, in this wicked world, to take a stand, to be willing to take a stand for you, Lord, to be willing to be different than the culture around us, to be willing to be different than the Babylonian uh, influences around us, Lord. Help us to be faithful to you, even in the little things, even as young people, Lord. I pray especially that you're with our young people, Lord, and help them to take the lessons of their youth and stand strong for you. So, Lord, uh, we want to offer our worship back to you now, Lord, and commit this day into your care. In Jesus' name, amen.